I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. So, Monica, really, really broad question for you. Why do you think biophilia is such an important concept? Ah, great question. Lots of reasons, obviously. So we've done a whole <laughs> podcast about it. We but do. I guess I, I would say a few things. First, biophilia reminds us that humans are part of nature and that we really need it to thrive. I also think that biophilia reframes the conversation around climate and advocacy in a way that feels more hopeful and more actionable and focus on health outcomes. So for me, all of that is more motivating and less abstract than a conversation about climate tends to be. We don't feel like we can touch climate per se. Oh my gosh, I couldn't agree more. And for me, it's really about bringing some of these ideas that are very intuitive to light. Things we inherently understand but have often forgotten in the modern world where we're just so busy and always plugged into the outside world. Yep. So, so much of this gets to the heart of what we've been talking about in today's episode. We're very excited to have Oliver Heath with us today. Oliver is the founder of Oliver Heath Design, an architecture and interior design practice out of the UK that focuses on health and well-being in the built environment and is one of the leading experts on biophilic design. So in addition to actually practicing, Oliver's studio does a ton of research and writes extensively about the way that bringing nature into the built environment impacts our well-being. Oh my gosh, I really love talking to Oliver and really soaking up his incredible expertise on this topic. We chat about everything from how he bridges the gap between academic research and his actual practice, how to think about biophilic design holistically, and why offices should design for diverse needs and personalities. All right, let's get to our interview with Oliver Heath. Oliver, we're so happy to have you today. Thank you for joining us. That's a pleasure, a total pleasure. We've been talking about you for months. I'm such a big fan of your work. Monica and Katrina and myself have been just chatting all about you. So thank you for taking the time to be on Biophilic Solutions with Monica and myself. And we're happy to dive in. So to get us started, we'd love to know more about you and how you got started in the field of biophilic design. Firstly, I mean, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. You know, I love it. It's so great to hear conversations from like-minded kind of enthusiasts and researchers and other experts. So it's an honor to be here. So I grew up in Brighton in England, and Brighton is a kind of coastal town that's on the seaside. So I grew up quite literally kind of running around in forests and on the hills and then playing in the sea in, the, in England, even though it's a little bit chilly. And so that was my formative years of getting quite kind of grubby knees, climbing trees, falling out of things, building dens. And that was really important formative years. We lived in the countryside. We ran through rivers. We ran wild in an era where we would have access to land. And that's sort of changed now. As I grew older, I became very interested in water sports and things. I was a windsurfing instructor for a number of years. And that kind of ran alongside me scuba diving. I was what else? I was a fire eater. I was doing all sorts of things. 
fire eater. Okay, pause. Yeah. Yeah. You just dive into that. I did all sorts of dangerous things, basically. I was a fire eater. I traveled a lot. Lots of near-death experiences, you know, lots of life stuff, like breathing fire out of my mouth and stuff like that. That's the one that always catches people's attention. doesn't matter how many years of architectural studies I did, which was actually seven years. It's still the two hours of being taught to be a fire breather that has got me more work than anything in my life. We need photos. photos of this, Oliver. Okay. (laughs) So basically, I went on to study architecture. And in a way, my passion for windsurfing and the sea and being out in nature and surviving in nature, but also ultimately respecting it, sort of intertwined with my studies in architecture at University College London. And as I left and went on, I ended up leaving the architectural profession a little bit, doing lots of building projects on my own. I won an architectural competition on television, ended up sort of working in television. I decided when I started working on television that I should make it my mission to talk about things that were really important. And at the time in 1998, the thing that was really striking to me was that there wasn't enough focus on the impact that humans were having on the planet. And so I made it my mission to talk about sustainability through the platform of TV design shows, which I've got to say was not easy because they're, you know, they're a bit like pantomime shows. They're quite frilly. They're quite fluffy. There's not a lot of real depth and content, but I realized I had a platform that I could talk to journalists and do interviews about sustainability and just drop in ideas about recycling and upcycling and zero toxins in the environment. And then over the years, what I realized was trying to promote sustainability, particularly in the residential or domestic market, was that people weren't that bothered. They couldn't understand the connection between what they did in their homes and the impact that might have on the wider environment to the Arctic ice caps or to the Amazon rainforest. And I realized that people just weren't motivated. They would say, sort of, look, we do the insulation and the low energy stuff, but really we just want a bigger kitchen. So we'll do that phase two, (laughs) but it's a bigger kitchen now. And what I realized was that it wasn't a motivational subject. But actually, it was just about language. So what I did is I started to change my conversation. And I said, look, when we design this office or this hotel or your home, we want the people to occupy your space to be happy. We want them to be healthy. We want to, well, we don't want to put toxins into your space. We want it to be warm so you don't get mold and damp and poor air quality. We want people to talk and meet and mix and, and to relax. And of course, Everyone says, well, of course, that's what we we all want to be happy and healthy. We would put money into making sure our children live in a happy, healthy, toxin-free environment. So I go, okay, great. Well, well, firstly, we're going to insulate. Then we're going to like draft-proof your building or your home. Then we're going to put non-toxic products in. And then we're going to make sure that things can be disassembled. And we were doing all the same stuff, to be honest. So... I moved a transition really from a sustainability conversation to a health and well-being conversation. And when I entered that, I kind of found the work of Stephen Kellett. And that was a revelation to me because suddenly it explained all of my life lessons of splashing around in rivers, building dens and camps, climbing trees and architecture. And my love of windsurfing and even my passion for balls of fire, you know, I was so fascinated in this stuff because you have this genetic inheritance. It wasn't my fault. We've all got it. We all have this deep connection to nature. And I realized actually that this was the solution to my approach to architecture and something I could sort of really understand and get behind. 
And the research just made it all the more compelling. So it was suddenly a massive light bulb moment that I found the work of Stephen Kellett and I read his book on the biophilia hypothesis and then biophilic design. And it was just like, this is this is brilliant stuff. And, you know, I should say that my background, my family are psychotherapists. So as well as studying ah. architecture, there was always a sort of underbed of like understanding who we are and why we react to other people and our history, our culture, uh, and where we're coming from. So these ideas just kind of blended together and made perfect sense to me, as I think they do really to anyone. So I love all of that. And I don't even know where to start because I could ask you 17 questions. And we'll save the fire eating maybe for like Thank a cocktail you. conversation. <laughs> but I, I have given it up since then because obviously the carbon emissions associated with it, global warming yes. issues, it, it wasn't, it was never going to be a healthy thing for people or planet, particularly me when I set yeah. my head on fire. It goes against your brand. Yeah. At yeah. Point. But you were sitting, I just want to set the table for everybody. You're living your work. So where are you sitting right now? Because you have a ton of plants behind you of all different shapes and sizes. You're in this fabulous curvilinear ceiling room. Is this your office? Is yes. this your home? Yes. I absolutely adore it. So tell us a little bit about what is going on behind you and why well, firstly, I should say I am standing, not sitting, because we we have standing desks for our staff. Because sitting down is a new cancer. So, and we are. Yeah. <laughs> so we're currently in my office, which is in Brighton. It's an old church community hall in a Victorian building. It's sort of flooded with light. We have uh, accumulated dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of plants over the years of the wow. projects that we've been doing. And so the office is a little bit of a jungle. It's filled with all sorts of different plants because we like diversity in spaces and people and landscapes. It's lovely in light. We're about a five-minute walk to the seafront. So, you know, if we need to get some fresh air or go and see some gentle movement in water, it's just down the road. Ordinarily, the office would be filled with people, but it's a Wednesday. People are working from home at the moment. So we kind of connect in. So it's just me here today. But basically, I run a design practice and we are writers, researchers, designers and advocates for health and well-being for people on the planet. So we spend a lot of our time collating knowledge and research and writing white papers and research studies. And then we bridge the gap from that knowledge, from those kind of research academics into the design world. And we implement those designs. So we always try and make our work very accessible and understandable and give people practical advice to how to implement these many interesting theories into the real world. And then I just spend a lot of my time teaching architects around England, Europe, the Middle East, the Far East about biophilic design and well-being. And I sort of present a number of sort of seminars and workshops, probably of about over 500 over the last eight years, actually. So it's kind of, it's a lot. Yeah, I spent a lot of time teaching architects about biophilic design, spreading the word, ready. Sure. It's so important. And so one of the things I want to ask you, because I think you kind of hit on some of the motivations, and I think you're right. It's basically how you tell the story and how you set the conversation with people. Because you're right, people their eyes roll back when you start talking about insulation and maybe even, you know, what's on your floor, or what's in your walls. But when you start talking about the health of their children, exactly game over. Yep. Right. And so have you found that over the years of your practice, people are asking you the questions more rather than you leading the conversation? Are you seeing a turn? We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? 
the Biophilic <laughs> Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings, and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. When I first started teaching biophilic design to architects about about eight years ago, I would enter into a room and people would never have heard of the term. And yet when I spoke about it and the principles behind it, everybody would say, oh, we're sort of doing that already. I mean, a lot of what sits behind and, and underpins the patterns of biophilic design kind of underpin good design. And so I think a lot of experienced, knowledgeable and good designers across the board, whether they're urban designers, architects, interior designers or product designers, recognize that the principles behind it enhance human experience of space and place. And yet they didn't know the term and they certainly didn't know of the kind of key ideas and concepts that underpin it or the patterns of biophilic design or the key proponents of the movement. But since we've been doing that over the last eight years, now I enter a room and people have sort of know about biophilic design. It tends to be rather limited to the direct connections of biophilic design. So the use of natural light and fresh air and, of course, plants and trees. And then so we have an opportunity to expand their understanding, to understand a little bit more about the kind of direct patterns, the indirect connections to nature, you know, how we mimic and evoke nature, but also putting people in the mindset that as human beings, we are part of nature. We don't sit above it. We're very much an integral part of it and connected to these delicate systems. We're part of nature. We are of the natural world. We're filled quite literally with microbiota, meaning a large proportion of us isn't even human. Mm-hmm. So we have mm-hmm. nature literally sitting within us. We just have to understand that and recognize that equally as human beings, and we haven't really developed that much since early homo sapiens, <laughs> that we still need those basic principles of shelter, warmth, security. We need prospect and refuge. We find nature exciting and stimulating, but also find it calming and relaxing. So this sort of human spatial response is also important and and maybe sort of most often forgotten about that idea that we need to have restorative spaces in this busy 24-7 techno-filled world. I think that's so interesting. I love that you said that too. 
what Monica was just touching on, the fact that when you start talking, you change that conversation from just sustainability to more of a health conversation. Then people get it and they say, wow, why? And people almost like you said also, Oliver, people innately know it feels good. We just need to be taught. So the research, I'm sure, helps you open those conversations, those doors more. Is your work getting more involved in people's homes or more offices these days? Or is it kind of both that you're working in homes and offices to really change it and change the perception of spaces and places that are making us well or unwell? Well, it was interesting. Obviously, with all the evidence and the research that supports biophilic design and its ability to reduce negative issues in buildings, things like absenteeism, presenteeism, staff turnover, things that cost people a lot of money, but also the opportunity to enhance the desired outcome for the building, things like productivity, creativity, engagement, and a sense of purpose and value. A lot of those things create this business case, which means that it's far easier to convince somebody who's paying somebody to be in a building to understand the return on investment that we're trying to make through implementing these biophilic design strategies and patterns. So as a result, much of the research really exists within the commercial world, primarily really, you know, for the workplace, but also hospitality and healthcare and also education. All of these building sectors have numerous studies that demonstrate the value of reconnecting people with nature as a means to reduce stress, aid recuperation and enhance a sense of community. So as a result, the residential or domestic market has sat slightly further behind because it's quite difficult to demonstrate a return on investment of somebody just having a better home, a more beautiful home. (laughs) So it's difficult to convince people because it's quite difficult to put a price or a value on something like happiness. And because we're not really traditionally measuring productivity or engagement or some of the negative aspects, I think there's a lack or a hole in the research around residential and domestic environments. So prior to the pandemic, what we were doing was helping organizations. We worked with the likes of Bloomberg, Booking.com, I've advised Apple and Interface on the principles of biophilic design and how to adopt them. And the many benefits that strategies will bring to their building portfolios and ultimately to the people who work in them to attract staff, to get them to be happier, healthier, to make them more productive, creative, communicative, and to retain staff as well. And then what happened was in the pandemic, obviously we switched from stepping out of our homes and into our exterior worlds, commuting, going to work, going to cafes and restaurants and all those sort of commercial entities. And we started to spend a lot more time in our homes. And suddenly we realized how important our homes were, particularly as many of us were working from home. And at that point, we started to realize that many of the lessons that we'd learned from the research studies and the work that we've done were also applicable to the home. We just didn't necessarily have all the research to back it up. But of course, as we stepped into our work from home environments, we suddenly had a far greater or reduced diversity of spaces in our daily experience. We weren't stepping out and going to bus stations or train stations or traveling or going to cafes or restaurants or our workplaces or cinemas or restaurants. We were just at home. When you were in your home office, you were just surrounded by your four walls. And it suddenly became quite an intense experience. And people suddenly realized that if this is it, this is my day, then I've got to get out. I've got to tend to some plants or do something on my balcony or get into my garden or go for a walk to the park or a local nature reserve or habitat. I've got to do something to relieve the kind of stress and anxiety and fatigue. 
And so as a result, the principles of biophilic design, I think, became far more deeply ingrained within individuals and an understanding of the impact that the built environment has on our physical, mental, and emotional well-being. So I think it really transferred from the commercial world to the residential domestic environments in a far and greater and enhanced way through the pandemic. Of all the terrible things that happened, that is perhaps one kind of important benefit to recognize that people understood that their health and well-being is intrinsically connected to the health and well-being of nature all around them, whether that's on their desk, in their garden, in a local park, but equally in the wider global environment. And I think that's a really important lesson. We became systems thinkers. Mm, Yeah, I know that's wonderful. And I think biophilia or the experience over COVID, not that it's over, but that really we talk about kind of woke people up, right? They realized the benefits. And to your point, I think it's really interesting that a lot of people know that they need this thing, but they can't quite put their finger on it. But once you give them the context or the vessel of biophilic design or the patterns, and I love, I'm obsessed with like prospect and refuge. And when you explain that to people who don't understand it, the light bulb that goes off in their heads is sort of magical. And so I think all of the white papers and business case kind of work that you're doing as well as the education is so important because I think we all know that if you don't have those, the companies are sort of like, show me why. Mm -hmm. They all want the ROI. So I think it's so exciting that you've built up all the case studies. You mentioned Interface and, you know, we're here located, well, I'm located, I should say, right here outside of Atlanta. And so Interface is a good friend and partner of ours. We absolutely adore them. And so tell us a little bit about that relationship. And is that something that came out of the work you were doing? Did you approach them? Did they approach you? Were you using their product? How did those experiences come together when you're getting a large client like that? Or really a partner because they're... They are. They're they're basically our knowledge partner. Yeah. So I was already aware of Interface and we had connections in the UK. But what happened was I was working on a television program in the UK for a woman who had a particular syndrome that meant that she wasn't able to get up and walk. She was sort of immobilized in her home. And the, the ethos of the program is that we go in, we understand this woman's situation, we transform her home, we make it appropriate for her life. And the woman was a very keen gardener, and yet she was kind of confined to a bed in her kitchen in this very tiny home in the north of England. And what I wanted to do was to reconnect her with her garden. And so the kind of principles of biophilic design were absolutely perfect. So we transformed our home and we used interfaces, urban retreat carpet tiles, which kind of mimic natural colors and surfaces of grass. Once the program had gone out, and obviously I talked a lot about biophilic design and the program because it was so revolutionary, got dozens and dozens of requests from journalists going, hang on, I'm a de- I've been a design journalist for 20 years. How come I don't know about biophilic design? And you, TV showman person, you're, like, you're, telling, you're telling me about something. I studied, you know, I studied art history. I should know about this. And getting all of this interest. So I approached this visionary lady who's head of marketing in England, Karen Lambert, and said to her, look, for some reason, there seems to be an, an enormous interest in biophilic design and a real lack of awareness and understanding in what it's about. And I knew that Interface were creating biomimetic products. So they basically used software to create products that mimicked natural colors and textures, and then had advanced manufacturing techniques that implemented those colors, textures, materials into carpet tiles. So it was this kind of fantastic opportunity to take something as simple as a carpet tile. I mean, that's, you know, 
when I tell people about carpet tiles when I'm at a party, people tend to glaze over. <laughs> sure. no, 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 listen, it's amazing because they mimic nature and they can make you feel good. You know, and it's like suddenly this kind of like, oh, really? How good a carpet tile? So that was the amazing sort of leap that we made with interfaces biomimetic tiles. They were already talking about biophilic design. And so I sort of said, well, look, maybe we need to be teaching architects and interior designers and built environment professionals about this subject and the many benefits it can bring and how it's not just about plants and trees and the obvious connections to nature. It's about all these other things that they can do because in a built environment like the UK, 90% of the population live in urban environments. Many times people just don't have that opportunity to connect with real forms of nature, where we're much more condensed and closed in than I think you are in the United States. So there was this real opportunity to say, well, let's transform this urban landscape, which has excesses of stress and anxiety and burnout, for whom work-related stress was extremely high. There are so many issues that cause it, whether it's that work, burnout, the stress issues, the urbanization, the fact that we spend 90% of our lives indoors. The fact that we've got so much technology around us, all of these things accumulate to mean that we just don't connect with nature in the same way that we did even in the earlier part of my lifetime. So I think an enormous opportunity existed. So from that, I started teaching architects. We created RIBA certified CPDs, and I started touring England and Europe and the Middle East. And then we started writing a series of white papers which essentially were research studies that kind of contained information about biophilic design, explaining what it was, the research that underpins it, that contains the metrics that demonstrate the return on investment. And we were sort of collating these environmental psychology studies and putting the numbers together, but also helping architects to go, well, understand, look, these are the ideas. This translates into this in the built environment and try and overcome some of the obstacles and barriers we felt there would meet. For instance, the finances and how you might afford biophilic designs by creating sort of different cost strategies. How might you do the really simple things? Well, just look out your window. Is there a walking meeting route that you could advise your client that your staff take to how do you bring elements of nature in, whether plants or trees or natural materials or natural looking materials like biomimetic carpet tiles? Through to recognizing that people are human beings They were never designed to be on and focused for eight, nine, 10 hours a day as employers expect them to be, but to treat them as human beings and go, look, people need to stop and sit. They need to recuperate their mental and cognitive abilities. And so let's create micro restorative spaces for people to inhabit, treat them as adults, trust that they won't just kind of go off and let's educate them and demonstrate the benefits. And since that point, we've written about five or maybe six design guides exploring biophilic design processes and approaches, the different benefits and the return on investment. And so it's been a really beneficial, fascinating journey to collate this knowledge alongside Interface and to produce these white papers. And and the great thing is, is that these are all free to download. So this isn't like sectioned off. You don't have to pay some research group to access them. It's really about making this essential knowledge about how we reconnect with nature, free, available, accessible, and I think, importantly, practical. Because what we're trying to do is bridge that gap between the world of academia and the world of good design. Wait, I've got to stop you right there. You just saying that, that you're making it free to the public, that everyone should have your very E.O. Wilson, you know that, because E.O. Wilson was giving all this data, all the research to everyone. So as, as E.O. would put it, that we're better off when we all share 
So we're all better equipped to handle the knowledge and the information. So you're very E.O. Wilson in sharing all of your research and your data. And I think it's wonderful. Well, that is the biggest compliment I think I've had in months. <laughs> Maybe a year. <laughs> Thank okay, you. good. Okay, good. Well, it is interesting. And I think that is a huge, like why Jen and I came together was like, how do we educate people on this really magical concept and cool idea that when you hear the word, nobody really understands what it is. They can't pronounce it. They're confused. They think it'll never catch on. And obviously biophilic design, we sort of think of biophilia as the umbrella, if you will. And then all these things sit underneath it, right? And in other people may think biomimicry is the umbrella, but like the idea that design, if you will, is the current ambassador for the concept is so cool. I think of you and the idea is a very humanistic concept. And we need more of that, right? We need that free. We need that abundance. We need not versus scarcity, this mindset of giving that I think biophilia or a plant in your home, or how do we create happiness and give back in a way? But do you think that the trend, I'm always sort of fascinated with the trend is going to continue where people are going to further embrace it? Or do you think it will be, and I don't want to, because this is your world, siloed into design, but there's so much that can be done with biophilia from a principal standpoint beyond design patterns. Do you think it'll continue to catch on or do you think it'll just live in the design practice world? I think absolutely it's going to catch on. And if the sign of the number of students who write to me asking for me to comment on their thesis is any symbol of it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, really Wonderful. taking off, which is great. And I yeah. think essentially what we're starting to see is a reconsideration of what design is all about. I think for too long, that idea of design is a very extrinsic message. And I use that term as a means to say, like, design is often used as a symbol of status or power or wealth. You know, look at my flashy car. Look at my gold-plated taps. I got the designer in yep. to do this. I've got this designer, what, a boutique hotel. It's always about showing the world that I've bought into this design. I'm associated with that brand. And for somebody that comes from an architecture background and that desire to design with some sense of greater value and purpose to the wider world, we turn that around and say, well, let's think of it more as an intrinsic approach. How can we use design as a means to make people feel better, to help them actually perform the task they're supposed to be doing in that building or space? How can we design a school where children can learn faster and get better test results and want to go into school because they enjoy education? How can we create an office that encourages people to stop and talk and meet, to share ideas, to cross-fertilize, to share knowledge and skills, but also just to sit and recuperate? How do we design hospitals? Not to mm. be a sort of symbol of power for a local authority, but to actually ensure that the patients get better faster with less medication, that they feel happier, that staff can work under or more stress-free environments. That sort of intrinsic approach is really important. And I think once you realize that design has an enormous opportunity to deeply improve the quality of the environment, it's very difficult to go back and go, oh, let's just put a nice wallpaper in there and make it look pretty. That sense of design with purpose is being reinforced again and again. And of course, right now, we don't really have the time or the resources to just take an aesthetic approach we have to realize that design is an enormous opportunity. And I think as designers, we have to recognize that we are perhaps the most important design generation that has ever existed because we've got a mission. Yeah. You know, we have an influence 
on the built environment, which, you know, contributes in the UK to at least one third of carbon emissions. We have a role here. And I think as participants in the built environment, we have to help others understand the opportunities. And what we're starting to see is firstly an acceptance that biophilic design is a really important, fascinating, human-centered opportunity to create a better built environment. But we're also starting to go beyond that to think, well, what if we do enhance that connection to nature? Maybe we can go beyond it just being a human-centered approach. Maybe we can actually, through this inclusion of nature and connecting people with nature, start to create a more regenerative approach and start to say that if we start to include nature, not just into our offices or onto our buildings or into our streets or neighborhoods, but into our cities and our whole kind of way of life, then we can support biodiversity. We can mitigate the impacts of climate crisis. When we start to put trees in streets, they can do all sorts of incredible things. They can improve air quality. They can remove pollution. They can support biodiversity. They can prevent excess flooding. They provide lovely shady spaces. They reduce the urban heat island effect. All these incredible benefits from putting trees in streets. It's not just about what do we do in an office, but it's thinking in a much more holistic approach. And we often talk about the nature diet triangle. And it's an idea that we borrowed from Tim Beatley's book, yeah. which, is, which is great. And, and I love this idea of a nature diet triangle. And it was borrowed from the food diet triangle that we need to connect with nature across a range of times and a range of spaces. So it's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to go on holiday once a year and that's my nature connection. We also need to think about it across how do I connect with nature across every season, every month, every week and every day. And not just, you know, well, I've got a tree in my street or in my city. You know, it's yeah. like, well, we need to think about, you know, connecting with nature in, in a national level, on a citywide level, on our streets and neighborhoods, our buildings and interiors. So we start to think in a much more holistic and connected approach to these nature connections that is more than just a plant on your desk, but it is ensuring that you continue that holistic journey throughout your life. And as designers, we need to encourage the built environment and our kind of fellows and colleagues to take that sort of nature first approach to supporting the built environment and how that can support nature and biodiversity and as a result, mitigate the climate crisis. So our approach is about going beyond. It's always going on beyond, you know, it's always looking onto the next thing. And I think we're starting to really see a coalition between the carbon-centered conversation of sustainability and this sort of nature-focused approach using biophilic design. And so these two are starting to merge and we're starting to investigate the ways that we can interconnect these different conversations and approach that through the lens of design. And education, right? Like what, what you're doing, Oliver, is all so much education of, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that just having a plant on my desk. And then, of course, that leads to like, well, what else can I do in my home? What else can I do in my neighborhood or my community? And even what you're saying now, like when I'm speaking to you, I'm in my tent that I've spent 34 years in every summer, but I didn't know the impact of it until I really started studying biophilia and biophilic design and then really kind of honing in why this makes me feel so good and why I'm like my walls are ebbing and flowing because it's a really breezy day at the beach and why <laughs> I can smell the soil because it was raining for the past 24 hours. So it's like this really deep understanding of why we need it. And then you fall in love with it. You're like, oh my gosh, how can I be without it? Because then you want to share the knowledge, which I think is so, so fascinating because it makes us all much better, much yeah. better off. 
Yeah, well, well, you, you, well, you just described a, a wonderful sensory environment that is so devoid of much of the built environment. I mean, how many people have walls that billow in and out? What a sort of fantastic indication of the immediate environment that you're living in. So I think if more people went out when camping, it would be good for them and good for their connection to the natural world. We're fascinated by the senses and how we can design with the senses and how we use biophilic design to restore and recuperate the human state within the built environment. So that multi-sensory approach is really important. And so I think so often we're just very focused on the visual sense and how something looks or how it looks on social media. Yeah. Forgetting all of those other things, the sound, the smell, the taste, the feel of nature, the, the balance, the you know, all of those subtle senses that we tend to forget about largely in the built environment. Our approach is multifaceted and we're always investigating more and trying to investigate how we can push the boundary of what biophilic design might be and the opportunities for how we implement it into the built environment for different kind of segments of our community and different building typologies. We're all very fascinated about the white paper you did design the cognitive and sensory well-being because I've just recently started to understand and really dissect and dive into the neurological differences we all have, of course, but your work is almost like it's neurodiversity, right? The spaces that we reside in or go to really affect all of us so differently because of who we are and how we came to be. Can you touch a little bit on on that white paper? I'm really fascinated by that work. Yes. So we were lucky enough to write another white paper or design guide with Interface. And this one was looking at designing for the senses. We were interested initially in the ideas of mindfulness and how we might create mindful spaces that actually help people to sit and to focus. And as we started to investigate this subject further, we sort of uncovered the fact that human personalities are not necessarily just sort of black and white. We weren't sort of introverts or extroverts. It was much more nuanced than that. And actually what we found was that our personality types were one thing, but equally, we all perceive the built environment through our senses in different ways. And we don't all have a same level of sensory threshold. Some people are much more sensitive to sound and get easily distracted. Some people are very sensitive to a sense of smell or taste or touch. And so recognizing that there is this sort of enormous diversity within groups of people became a really fascinating way to think about the populations that exist in buildings. Now, if we start to take that a little bit further, what that starts to suggest is that everybody sits on some balance between being either hypersensitive to these stimuli or hyposensitive. So either hypersensitive, then they might shy away from loud noises or rough surfaces. But if they're hyposensitive, then they sort of crave those inputs. And a good example of that is we all know people who are quite happy to sit in the corner of a busy, noisy cafe and work away. But for other people, that's a sort of living nightmare. And so we were <laughs> undertaking sensory profile tests in the office. And it was interesting that whilst some members of the office would certainly say they were extrovert, they also had quite heightened acoustic thresholds. So perhaps because they were extrovert, they were drawn to conversation and as a result were easily distracted. So by undergoing these sensory profile tests, this in particular member of my staff understood that if she had a piece of work that she needed to do, she needed to go and find a quiet corner or a small office to go and work in to sit and focus. Because although she was an extrovert, she couldn't filter out that noise. So that was a sort of really interesting piece of work that made us realize that there was an enormous diversity of sensory comfort thresholds. And that as designers, we should be thinking about it and thinking, well, how do we actually join all these people together, particularly as well on top of that, remembering that 
In the United States, 17% of the population have some sort of neurodivergent condition. So maybe dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism, or ADHD. 40 years ago, that number was probably closer to zero. It's only because we're now more proficient at testing that more and more people sort of realize they're on some sort of neurodiverse spectrum. So basically, everybody has sensory comfort thresholds, and we need to design that diversity. So when then we think, well, what's the one thing that joins all of us? Well, in reality, the one thing that connects all of us in terms of a design style or methodology is nature. We've all had positive experiences of nature. We have it quite literally written in as a genetic code to us that we recognize healthy forms of nature. That's the basis of the biophilia hypothesis. And that if we use elements within biophilic design, things like blue space theory, the savannah theory, non-rhythmic sensory stimuli, acoustic restoration theory, attention restoration theory, then we can start to create environments that have different sensory thresholds. So what was interesting about this design study is we started thinking about mindfulness and how we'd create mindful spaces and ended up creating an approach to the design for diverse communities who all have different sensory profiles. And ultimately, how we design for that with some spaces that are noisy and bustly and multi-sensory, going right through a range of sort of high sensory threshold spaces to medium to low sensory threshold spaces where people can sit and work and re- or even recuperate in very calm, quiet environments. And that actually every building that has multiple occupations needs to kind of think in this way and recognize that diversity in comfort thresholds exist and that we need to design for that. So it's a really interesting piece of research. And again, that's one of those papers that you can just download. And again, it goes into exploring the many benefits of biophilic design. Well, and one of the things is you, and I don't know if this was your personality type, type typing, the ocean model. Was that something that you guys put together or kind of riffed on another concept? And can you talk about that a little bit? Actually, the ocean model was a sort of personality trait type test. But what we found was that it wasn't necessarily relevant to this idea of sort of creating or recognizing sensory diversity. So what we did is we moved on to sensory threshold tests. So away from personality tests, which might investigate whether you were introvert, extrovert, or some sort of part between that towards moving more towards sensory thresholds and the impact that those have within the built environment. Yeah, I think if more people or really more companies did create those spaces, you know, we've gone from these isolated offices, right? The ideal was to have your own private office, then everything went open space in, I don't know, the 90s, I guess. I worked in Los Angeles for a number of years and my brother was at Shiat Day and I think they were one of those ad agencies that first did that and you didn't even get a desk suddenly. And it was this like crazy idea. I mean, now we have WeWork and other, you know, places where you don't really have a desk. You just show up and bring your, you know, you kind of tote your office with you. But I do think having the opportunity for a restorative space, and I like that word, possibly because maybe mindfulness has become a little co-opted. These words, and I worry about biophilia, um, in the long run, less so with people like yourself and Jennifer in the world who are continuing to lead of what it stands for. But so many times these words get co-opted and we don't know the meaning anymore, whether that's green, environmental, sustainable, wellness, mindfulness. I don't want to say big business, but you know, money sometimes co-ops these concepts. And so I like that you're saying restorative rather than mindful, because I think some people now it's become a little 
squishy. <laughs> and maybe restorative will get there too. But I think that's important. Do you find the apples of the world are implementing restorative spaces in the workplace that they can go to? Yeah, I think particularly since we started to return back to the workplace or even hybrid models, there's a great recognition of anxiety and stress and post-COVID anxiety syndrome and the issues that that has for employees and employers alike. And a recognition that when people were working from home, they could choose how they worked and where they worked. And of course, everybody was still productive, but probably had greater opportunity or maybe less anxiety about taking a moment out just to restore themselves after a Zoom meeting or an intense period of work. As we've returned back to work, I think people are recognizing that the work environment is stressful, that as stress builds up, fatigue builds up, productivity, creativity goes down. So there is, I think, an increasing need to consider the implementation of restorative spaces into the workplace to recognize that as sort of employers, on employers' behalf, that employees are adult, responsible. They want to go and do a good job, but they need to be able to stop and relax and restore themselves, even five minutes, gazing out a window onto a gently moving, swaying tree or a pool of water can have an enormous physical, mental, and cognitive benefit. So the last white paper that we've written with Interface was exploring exactly that and designing restorative spaces. And what we found was that there was a real need for it, a real interest in it, and that it kind of came down to four key approaches, the framework that we created, that was in part about creating a sense of privacy for people and how they could feel that they could just have a moment to themselves, creating spaces with some sort of visual stimulation. And I mentioned non-rhythmic sensory stimuli, that gentle movement that we see in nature, like ripples moving across a pool of water, that these spaces should be adaptable and flexible for their users. And that people should be able to adapt the sound and the light, maybe adjust a cushion or pull a blanket over them, but also to support mind-body connections, to root them back into those places, to give them a sense of, in a way, a sort of mindful connection to that moment, that they should spend that moment of quiet and calm, restoring their mental, physical, and emotional states. So we wrote this white paper with an aim to reinforce that idea that retreat spaces are important and that people do need to incorporate them. And it's a fundamental principle within the patterns of biophilic design to ensure that we do create spaces where people can stop, calmly relax, and, and restore their mental and physical well-being. So this final white paper was really interesting journey, investigating that and how we might start to think about that across the design world and how you might implement that from a sort of low-cost approach to medium to the sort of high-end approaches. And we've got some sort of great st case studies that demonstrate it. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting, the ping pong table and the free coffee and the whatever those benefits were that everybody thought that everybody wanted and maybe made a very convivial, fun workspace, perhaps we're being more introspective now and thoughtful with employees after the sort of trauma that everybody's been through. But I also think what you sort of touched on is control. When we are able to work from home, which many of us luckily were able to do, you had a sense of control over your day. Even though you were getting your work done, there was just a much more control. And so you hear about all these you know, nobody wants to go back into the office or people are quitting or quiet quitting or all these things. And I really wonder if it's just people want control of their day. And so if an employer can give them that with opportunities like a restorative space, whether that's a yoga room or meditation or just even for like a new mom, 
somewhere to do lactation, you know, maybe that's what we're sort of seeking is a little bit of control over our lives, as well as that connection to nature. So it'll be interesting over the next year or so, what continues to happen and what, quote, trends in the workplace to sort of lure people back in, if you will. Mm. I mean, essentially, it comes down to creating diverse spaces where people can walk in and see that all their physical, mental and emotional needs will be met. If you think about the classic kind of open plan office with rows of desks, it's kind of akin to a battery farm. This is your desk. Yes. This is where you work. You're yes. either here, you're in the bathroom, mm-hmm. or you're having lunch, and that's it, you know. So yeah. this is really about creating much more diverse spaces and recognizing that people do need that diversity. One of the questions we always ask of our clients is, where do you go when you need to cry? And they're like, well, we go to the bathroom. It's like, so it's <laughs> oh, like somebody's yeah. having emotional trauma You give them the bathroom, the noisiest, clankiest, sort of lacking in privacy, terrible sensory environment. That's where they go to cry. It's like, well, that's not very. Yes, exactly, (laughs) exactly. I mean, it's quite an extreme question to ask, but that's obviously one of the first questions we ask our clients. And it's like, well, if that's where they go, then maybe they you just need a high-backed chair. You need somewhere with a bit of acoustic privacy or somewhere where people can just have five minutes out where they're not going to be interrupted. And everybody has peaks and troughs throughout their day. Everybody has lives going on outside of their work. So providing this diverse range of places that suits people's different mental and physical, emotional states is really important. So that sense of diversity is really important. And that's so much about what our work consists of is encouraging diversity, whether that's in the spaces that we inhabit as people or how we create spaces that support biodiversity in the wider natural environment. It keeps for us going back to this idea of how to create more diverse environments that helps humans, but also helps the wider natural environment. I love that. And I also love what Monica, you just said, and also Oliver, when you were talking about, I'll touch on really quickly, that cognitively, we're not supposed to be focusing on our tasks just all day for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Like that's cognitive decline. And I think what you're doing is sharing this knowledge and sharing the information saying, oh, that's why I'm so tired. That's why I'm so, like, my brain is not supposed to be focused on one thing for so many hours at a time. Like we have to have these like little mental breaks to go, like you just said, create these rooms where people can just find themselves just quiet, slowing that prefrontal cortex, shutting down all of our open tabs in our brains. It's really important to know that, okay, it's not, it's not me. I'm not slacking on the job. I'm just mentally fatigued. That's why the attention restoration theory, the art is really important to kind of step back and say, okay, what is art? What are we doing to make sure we create these environments where not that, that we're optimized, but we're optimized for wellness, optimized for health, because we are more apt to be more in tune to nature and what's nature helping and healing us do throughout the day and not so focused on a task for 8, 10, 12 hours Exactly. And, and nature is the root because it's the one thing that connects us all, that we've all had these good experiences. So our role as biophilic designers is kind of reinstilling that connection to nature to elicit a similar physical and emotional response through the design patterns that we incorporate. It's just fascinating. I love it. No, I do too. And as we sort of wrap up here, I would love to know, what are you working on right now? What are you excited about? Whether it's your project you're working on or something that you're seeing out there, what's exciting you right now? We've got a number of projects on. You know, we've got a couple of research projects on. We have a biophilic design in the home 
online course that we offer people. So that teaches people about biophilic design patterns and how you implement them into the home because so much of that biophilic design world exists within the commercial, but this is in domestic residential environments. So we've got that course that's running. We're writing a new course. We're also in the process of developing a new white paper with Interface, which is going to be, I think, really groundbreaking as well. It's a completely sort of new direction. So that's really exciting. And then we're working with some big developers in the UK and investigating how we can enhance nature connections in what's called built-to-rent environments, so organizations, developers who own buildings and then rent out apartments within them. And so we're looking at creating financial and experiential benefits to these nature connections. So quite a range of different projects. We're working with uh, retail stores as well. We did a sort of uh, multi-sensory biophilic design pop-up at a kind of mall in England. And we're, we're looking at how we're going to develop that conversation. So we're sort of going right. in, in, in lots of different directions in kind of workplace, but also retail and residential. And I love realizing it. those kind of biophilic and human nature connections to create these restorative, regenerative environments. Yes, we need that. And where can we find you? Your website's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like a, from a brand perspective, I'm like, oh, makes me very happy. Oh, and your that. book, your latest book, oh, which no, the book. Is gorgeous. Yeah which will link to all of that. It's absolutely fabulous. But where should we follow you? How can we support your work? Well, our website is oliverheath.com. And in there, you'll find the online course. You'll find our book, which is called Design a Healthy Home, that puts all those well-being principles into the home and how you can design for that. All the white papers that we've written, you can sort of find them on our guide there. You can also find them through Interface, the white papers that we've written with them. So yeah, go to Oliver Heath Design. And then of course, we're on all the social media platforms. I was going to say, we're on Instagram and and Twitter. If you search Oliver Heath Design, we'll pop up. Maybe there's a dash in some of them or whatever, but yeah. We'll add them all to our show notes. Wonderful. Do you make it over to the US ever? I haven't for a while actually, but I would love to because there's so much going on and so much sort of great, thinking and development in biophilic design principles that I always yes. cite America where some of the most interesting research comes out of as alongside the likes of sort of Singapore and Scandinavia sure. and other forest-based sure. countries. But uh, I would love to come over to the United States and meet some of my biophilic colleagues at some point. So there's, there's, if there's yes. ever yeah. a symposium or conference, I'd love to come and talk about the work that we've done and our white papers and, and how we've put those ideas into practice. Well, well we would love that. <laughs> I'm actually on the board of the Biophilic Institute, and Tim Beatley is one of our board members, and we partner with Biophilic Cities to do that conference, which is in the spring. So I'll send you that information if you're available. You would be phenomenal. Uh, I think people would love to hear from you. Great. I'd love to. Yeah. And I think it's always really interesting to hear the different approaches and how a different cultural or ecological system applies these ideas. Because, you know, what we do here in the UK is different to what they do in Scandinavia, and it's different to what they do in the Middle East or Australia and America. So it's really interesting to hear these sort of different facets or approaches or things that are the similarities, but also the different and approaches and what makes it just really diverse and fascinating. So do send me an invite, please. I will. (laughs) Everybody, everybody's invited. Oliver, thank you so much. Really, this has been, we could, again, like I feel like we always say this, we could talk to you for hours because we feel like we have such great guests, but we've been really excited to have you on because we are such fans of your work and we really love what you're doing. So thanks again. Thank you. It's it's a total honor to be along the list of other great podcast alumni. So thank you very much for inviting (laughs) me. Well, thank you for your time. Lovely. Thank you very much. 
All right, Jennifer. So now I'm asking you the question, where do you go when you need to cry at the office? <laughs> Such a good question. Well, luckily, I don't have to escape to a bathroom, but I love that Oliver talked about that. I think we've all been there, and it's so very soul-crushing. Yeah, it really is. I think so many people relate to that awful feeling of having a bad day or an off day in the modern, fully open plan concept office and needing a moment, but not really knowing where to turn. Absolutely. And I think Oliver is really smart to ask that when he approaches new clients, because it gets right to the point about creating spaces that are human centered. Sometimes you might need to sit close to coworkers and chat throughout the day. Other days you might need more privacy to really focus. And sometimes you might need a little comfortable space to unwind. All that is valid and so deeply human. But for whatever reason, we're not designing spaces that put human needs first. Yeah. And it's fascinating to think about from a business perspective. How do we look at an revenue and ROI, but from a human-centered biophilic design perspective, People really need the tools and knowledge to implement those changes, which I think Oliver is doing. Yes. And the white papers that Oliver has put together with Interface are such great references for anyone who is interested. I especially like how they list out all the concepts with different budgets in mind. There are ways to implement these ideas without doing a full-on renovation, which is perfect. Yeah, I really think he's thoughtful in his approach, and that's reflected in his white papers and also speaking with him. He talks about nature and biophilia being like a through line that unites us, yet recognizes that everyone has different needs and design shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach. Amen to that. (laughs) And I like that he talked about it's not personality-driven, but more about sensory thresholds. I think think it's so cool. I've never Mm -hmm. really thought about it that way before, but now that I'm more aware of my own needs and my own thresholds on a given day, I might be able to like really figure out what I need to do for any given task. Yeah, he definitely really inspired me to rethink the office. So check out Oliver and his work at Oliver Heath Design. We've got all the links in the show notes, so definitely follow him on social too. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. All right. Bye, Jennifer. Bye, Monica. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement.